Hello, and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton. The UK is undergoing a great upheaval, which will change our relationships with the rest of the world and affect millions of people in this country. I'm talking, of course, about Brexit. In this week's issue, we explore this political shift from different angles and in depth, how we got to here and where we might go next. We have contributions from a range of people, including the Bishop of Leeds, Nick Baines, the award-winning economist, Anne Pettifor, and the Bishop in Europe, Robert Innes. I spoke to Bishop Baines about his article and what the church's role should be in post-Brexit Britain. Subscribe to the Church Times by visiting churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Early on in your piece, you recount a conversation in Stuttgart with Frank Walter Steinmeier, who was then German foreign minister and is now president. You say that was quite a prescient conversation. Could, could you just say a bit about that conversation? Well, we were waiting for um, Kofi Annan to come and we had just over an hour together. I'd met him once before. And, um, you know, so we were chatting. But the thing he wanted to talk about was the um, promise by David Cameron that there would be a um, it's basically stay or go referendum on the EU. And he just uh, was incredulous, really, about you know why are we even having the referendum, why are we thinking this way. I have massive respect for him, um, and but it, it did strike me that if you're looking through a German lens at this, or I think a general European lens, it looks different and feels different from how it does in the UK on the island, because for them, the European project is not just. Um, it's not just about institutions. It's about the peaceful rebuilding of Europe after the Second World War, of which the institutions that hold us together are an integral part. So we're looking through different eyes, really. That that was the point with Frank Walter Steinmeier. Yeah, you say it reinforced that language assumption and prejudice would shape what was to come more powerfully than reality facts or critical sobriety. I mean, I've been saying this even before the referendum, if you go back on my blog, that the, the question of the assumptions we, we make and the language we use can be a big giveaway. And we live on an island, we have an insular mentality, and because we're so poor at languages, we find it very difficult to look through the eyes of the outsider back at us. Now, the, you know, the Germans and many of the Europeans don't have that problem because they, they speak our language. And I think what too easily happens is that, and we've seen it in the referendum campaign subsequently, um, what I sometimes call government by assertion, that we, if we say things often enough, they'll come true. Um, if we believe it hard enough, it'll come true. The language betrays our assumptions and our prejudices and, um, and our ideologies. Um, the sad thing is that it's been very difficult to have a conversation between them and about them because the um, the prejudices, I think, have meant, or the ideological prejudices, have meant that people are too polarised um, to have the conversation. You're right that the House of Bishops at the time of the referendum didn't drive a particular line. Um, I mean, I guess the Archbishop of Canterbury did come out for Remain, um, but the House of Bishops collectively didn't have a line. Do you think, is that something you'd regret now, given the outcome? No, I don't regret it. I mean, the the judgment we took at the time was that we'd already made a, a very strong statement about the EU back in 2015 for the general election. We weren't going to revisit that or rewrite it. And some of us took the view, I mean, I did, that, OK, 
I wish we weren't having this referendum. It's unnecessary. It's about unity in the Tory party. But let's listen to the arguments. And so I didn't commit too early because I wanted to listen. I wanted to be in a position where, although a natural Europhile um, and a Remainer, I wanted to be in a position where I could be persuaded to vote leave. And I thought that was an important exercise. I wasn't the only bishop who attempted that. So, you know, we, I tried to work that one through. And I came to a particular conclusion in the end. Um, now, other bishops took a similar view and wanted to listen as well as speak. And I think it was quite late on when bishops began to declare their hand. It could be argued that if the bishops collectively had come out and said, we must remain or we must leave, that would have driven a lot of people to go in the opposite direction. <laughs> it doesn't. You, you can't make the assumption that just if the bishops had spoken strongly that that would have had a big influence it might have been negative influence for all we know sure and, and you also say that you know, writing now it's it's clear that the referendum was about a lot more than just the uk's place in europe well i don't think it was really about the uk's place in europe i think and a lot of um, leavers uh, were very clear about this this was giving a massive kick to the political establishment you know th- those who have suffered through austerity cannot lay that at the door of the EU or the EU institutions. And those who wanted to believe that 350 million a week would come back to the NHS without any evidence at all, just assertion. You know, those people, uh, I think, were duped. I think they were lied to. I think they were misled. But um, that has much of the complaint that was brought had nothing to do with the EU. It had to do with Westminster. So um, this is why on the um, morning of the referendum result, I tweeted that people have spoken. Uh, we're not sure what they've said. And I think that that debate needs to carry on. And I think we need to be clear, you know, to be a Remainer does not mean um, that you're completely pro the EU institutions with the blindfold on. You can be critical of that, but still come to a, a rational conclusion that it's best to be part of the EU than to walk apart from it. And it's certain leaving will not tend to the grievances um, that people expressed in voting in voting to leave the EU. I mean, how, how do you deal with those who say um, bishops and, and the members of the establishment and the liberal metropolitan elite are disconnected from the real lives and concerns of those, particularly in the north. Well, uh, we, this is a charge that was made at the General Synod that the bishops were out of touch because we didn't go along with the with those who were aggrieved. Well, you know, as I say in in the Church Times piece, um, apply that to 1930s Germany. Should the bishops have said, you know, what well, there's a massive populist um, uh, uprising really in, in favour of getting rid of the Jews? Uh, well, you know, that's the way they feel and it's, you know, it's all we've got to go with that. I mean, of course, it's nonsense. We would never do that. And, and the bishops had a responsibility and have a responsibility to tell the truth as they see it. They may be wrong, but to tell the truth as they see it, not to play that sort of game. And you're the bishop who leads on Europe in the House of Lords. Um, and you, you take the view that however misguided the result was, the leave vote should stand. Um what about those such as Lord Adonis, you know, in the Lords in particular, who who say that the consequences will be so calamitous for the country that we, we really need to stop Brexit? 
almost you know, whatever it takes. Well, I, I have two responses to that. And if I can just preface it with um, another comment. When you ask about the establishment and the metropolitan elite, who is more establishment than Michael Gove, Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, all these public school educated Westminster people who slag off the elite as if it was someone else? And people bought that. I mean, that's the joke about it all. But on the, the, the question of Lord Adonis and whether we ought to um, try and stop Brexit, I took the view, rightly or wrongly, that the referendum, you know, it was the people's vote. People voted. And therefore, you respect the outcome of that, even though I think it's dire. I may think the election of a particular government um, as any in a general election is dire. But, you know, you get another chance some way down the line. Now, with Brexit, I respect Lord Adonis and others who are driving towards a second referendum. I think that raises as many questions as not having one. But I also think, and this is going to be deeply unpopular, sometimes, a bit like Jeremiah in the Old Testament, you know, tries to warn the people about their political and military alliances and the impact of short-term convenience uh, arrangements And at the end of it, he goes into exile with the rest of them. And if uh, things do look as if they're going to be bad uh, outside the EU, then we will have to go into exile and work out what hope looks like practically in those circumstances. However calamitous Brexit is, and I think it will be bad, you know, the fact is that you, over time, you begin to rework it and you begin to build up a new reality. It may take 25 years. That means the generation suffers. But but that's the reality. I wish it was different, but it isn't. And what, what role do you think there'll be for, for churches in that new reality as um, reality bites post-Brexit? I think um, churches are at the forefront of things like food banks and other social refuges, if you like. I think that's going to get worse. Um, You know, if if businesses are leaving the city and leave this country, it's going to be less tax revenue um, to provide the safety nets that, you know, we we feel people ought to have. And it's bad enough after um, these years, you know, a decade of austerity. Um, So that may get worse in churches. where income may be less because you know people suffered, they're going to have to. We're all going to have to um, see how we care for those around us. We can also, though, I think, organise. Uh, we have a good track record in that across the country. And I think the other thing is, which is more nebulous, but I think we've got to pay attention to, particularly the bishops. How do we articulate hope? How do we articulate and forge reconciliation? Um, and create the conversations that need to be had between those who are bitterly divided. You know, the, the big problem is that we're a very divided country. Even if we had another referendum and voted to remain, we don't go back to where we were before all this started. You know, we were bitterly divided. So we have to pay attention to how do we attend to that with the Ministry of Reconciliation that has been committed to us. May you talking to other bishops about, do you have a sort of joined up strategy for that or is it more in the conversation stage at the moment? We, we had um, uh, the Lord Spiritual had a long meeting on it um, a couple, uh, last week and um, we're now, and I certainly am beginning to 
work out what that might look like. Which, I mean, basically means that different bishops in their dioceses are going to have to work out what structures they already have, how they're going to um, encourage this sort of ministry of reconciliation. And um, uh, I'll be doing the same. And you're involved in the, the, the detail of the legislation in Parliament, in, in the Lords. Um, what do you think needs to happen to um, mitigate the damage, to, to, to soften the blow of, of Brexit? at a legislative level? Well, I think it's too late in one sense. I don't think it can be mitigated now. I mean, the trade bill um, is going through at the moment. And, you know, some of the um, misunderstandings and misrepresentations of the impact of Brexit on trade need to be exposed in that. But as I, I've said elsewhere, I'm not, I don't think this is entirely rational, certainly in the public discourse. It's very visceral. Um, so facts in, for many people actually don't matter. Um, I, I think, you know, the EU withdrawal bill went through. Um, and the, the big thing now is, you know, while Parliament is picking off little bits of legislation to try and get the legislative book um, sort of in reasonable shape for when we do leave, um, everything hinges now on whether Parliament accepts the deal that um, Theresa May comes out with. If Parliament doesn't, then the game changes again. And then, the, you know, the options then are manifold, but we're not sure what will happen. Did you have a sense of what the most likely outcome is in the, in the autumn? I, I find this really difficult. Until recently, I thought the most likely outcome would be um, a challenge to Theresa May that a general election would be called and that would be the way to sort it out. But we don't have an opposition, credible opposition. And we certainly don't have an opposition that um, wants to push to remain. You know, Jeremy Corbyn clearly is pro-Brexit. So um, for different reasons from Theresa May. Um, but that's the situation we're in. So I'm not sure that would resolve anything. Would we have a second referendum? Well, what would the question be? Or the questions be, and I think that question still has to be answered. And then, when we've had a second referendum at some point in the future, do we have a third? Now, what has happened is that we've lost our credibility as a competent democracy um, in many other places around the world, particularly in the EU. It's going to take time to recover from that. And just briefly, you said that you've got many contacts in continental Europe. Um, you mentioned how the how the European project looks through their eyes. How does Brexit look through their eyes? And do you think it might lead to any soul searching there about the, the structures of the EU? It's as some people say, it's desire to, to to perhaps dominate more than is appropriate. No, I think um, some of the more imperialistic tendencies of the EU have been thwarted, if you like, or certainly derailed for the time being by Brexit. But I think there's so much focus on Brexit and one or two other issues that um, reform of the EU is not you know, going to be top of the agenda until Brexit is resolved. And that's my perception. Again, I might, might be wrong in that. My, my conversations, particularly in Germany, but also further afield, I was in Serbia um, earlier this year, and there were people from um, loads of countries, um, all of them just incredulous, really, about why we're committing an act of, of national self-harm. And I think the the common question uh, was, almost sympathetic question, was 
can't you see what you're doing? Not just to yourselves, but to us. To which my answer was, well, I'm afraid the reality is we in the UK don't care about you. <laughs> this is all about us. That's part of our myopia. We can only see through our own eyes. We can't see through theirs. Otherwise, we might have handled it differently. And the other thing about looking through the eyes of the other person is that the first prerequisite of any effective negotiating is to be able to see through your opponent's eyes, if I can call it that, um, to, to see how they see and to hear how they hear the language we use. Otherwise, you can't negotiate, you can't second guess, you can't head off, you can't preempt. And we are in, seem incapable of doing that. And I, I spoke to a political lawyer in Dresden last year when I was out there to preach, who said to me um, very um, uh, strongly, he said, you know, I think Brexit is wonderful. He said, I, I think it's great. You know, I, I think it's um, the EU needed a big kick and uh, I, I'm pro Brexit, but I can't believe the incompetence with which it's been led by your government. So you had someone there in Germany who actually thinks Brexit's a good thing, but then can't just can't understand why we've done it so badly. And all I could say was, well, actually, um, it was meant to heal a division. It's deepened the division and it's very difficult to get a consensus. I mean, how do we get a How are we going to get a deal through when the Tory party of government can't agree, when Parliament might not agree and we've still got to talk to the EU and they might not agree? Um, you know, it's, you know, maybe it'll all work out and all be hunky-dory, but it doesn't look that way. And, you know, to go back to an earlier question, I think, Bishops, like anyone else, have a responsibility, not just the right, to tell the truth as they see it, whether it's popular or not. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.